Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, we're joined by Dr. Daniela Brancaforte. Daniela grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and has lived in many different locations in the U.S. and internationally before settling down, for now, in Washington, D.C. area. She has had a winding career path since receiving her Ph.D. in sociocultural anthropology from Princeton University in 2000. Daniela taught German, Italian, and business anthropology at various universities, worked as a consultant, co-founded a service-disabled veteran-owned consulting firm, which she managed for 10 years, and then decided to return to higher education. She has been at Georgetown University since 2014, serving first as an advising and academic dean in the business school, and then moving to the provost's office to set up Georgetown's inaugural Office of the Student Ombuds, serving more than 16,000 undergraduate and graduate students on the main campus. Daniela never thought of being an ombuds when she was growing up, but she feels that her work as an ombuds is truly a calling that brings together her lived and educational experiences in meaningful new ways. Her academic interests include the intersection of business and culture, workplace dynamics, immigration and entrepreneurship, social justice, and power inequities. Although work is important, Daniela finds joy in playing soccer at least twice a week, taking walks with her dog, visiting her close relatives in Sicily and Germany, and spending time with her husband and two kids. Good morning, Daniela, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Good morning, Mary. It's so nice to see you again. Oh, it's so lovely to see you. Uh, we met at the International Ombuds Association Conference last month, and what a wonderful conference that was. I agree. It was great to see everyone in person. Yes. Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Will you tell us about the first job you ever had? Uh, sure. So the first job I had was probably picking dandelions from our lawn in Madison, Wisconsin. And my mother would give me one penny for every three or five of dandelions that I picked. <laughs> and then I quickly turned to babysitting, which paid a little bit better, but not much. So yeah, just babysitting probably was the first one and doing some translations as well from different languages. So, but, but that was a little bit later. So as you went through your life experiences and get, get into college, did you major in anthropology? Is that what you majored in in undergraduate? I did. I majored in anthropology and Italian. And how did you come to that? Well, I think it's because I took my first anthropology class in college. I said, oh, this is exactly what I have been living and have wanted to learn more about. Both of my parents are immigrants from Europe, and I always had this, I, I grew up in a very multicultural household, languages, different languages were spoken, and I always felt a little bit outside of everything. So never felt like I completely belonged with my cohort or when I was going through school. So this idea of sort of being an outsider looking in um, was interesting to me. And that's what anthropology just kind of brought together for me. That's what I love about college. That's how I found philosophy. I didn't know anything about philosophy. It was my freshman year, first semester. I sat in a philosophy class and it was like the heavens opened. And 
it was like you, I found my people. I had no idea this was a thing because it just really suited who I was. And that's wonderful. These kinds of experiences that we can have that allow us to see beyond what we saw before. Exactly. And I think my, my parents wanted me to follow in their footsteps and become language professors. And I also said, no, I, I think I want to do something different. So anthropology was that, although I also majored in Italian. So there you go. That was <laughs> so you got your, yeah, you got your language in there too. <laughs> so then you went through and you, did you receive your PhD in anthropology? I did. I did. I received my, my, uh, yeah, I went, I went to graduate school for a long time. Uh, anthropologists take a long time to get their PhD for some reason. I, I decided not to go the academic route. I really enjoyed studying anthropology. It was at a time when there was a big culture of publish and parish or perish. And so I decided to sort of go a different track, but we can talk about that. Yeah. Well, tell us about that. Go. What did you do with your anthropology background? So, I mean, part of it was because my, my husband had to, um, we met in graduate school and he had to pay back military service. So so we were living on a military base and it was really difficult to get a job for an, an army spouse. So I did do some teaching and um, taught taught language in at the universities where we were. And then I, when we moved to the DC area, I also taught as an adjunct professor uh, at, at uh, George Washington University in anthropology. And then I, I opened up the newspaper one day and saw a classified ad for consulting. And they were looking for a consultant who understood military families and military family programs. This was at, right after 9-11. And I said, wow, that's exactly what I, what I had done my research on. So I applied for the job and I became a consultant and I had no idea what a consultant was at the time. <laughs> so I, I, I did that for about three or four years, traveling all over the place, interviewing people. It was really applied anthropology. It was conducting focus groups and understanding the, I mean, how systems work and how the, these programs worked and talking to people from of all ranks in the military and other organizations. It was fascinating to me. I was able to travel, which I love to do as well, going from Alaska to the Virgin Islands, I mean, and everywhere in between. And then I started my own company, co-founded a consulting company, because my the person I co-founded it with is a was a service-disabled vet and uh, we decided that we really liked doing the research but didn't love you know just sometimes in consulting it feels like like it's really important to win the work and then afterwards you know people do the like, I liked to do the work and actually okay. do the research so so that was really interesting we had we had this company for about nine or ten years it was great while my kids were growing up. It was very flexible. I did a ton of work at night when everyone was sleeping. And I had a very supportive spouse who would take care of kids when I had to travel, which was really important. And then I decided that I I missed academia. 
because uh, I was sort of an academic brat. Both of my my um, parents are professors and decided and I just saw I, I just started looking for jobs again. And I saw this job at the current university where I am. And I, for an academic dean and advising dean, and I said, oh, okay, I've never done that before. Let's try it. They were looking for someone who spoke Italian and Spanish. And it was just, it seemed tailor-made for for what I wanted to do. So uh, that was a, a great adventure. So I'm still at this university. And do you want me to continue? I can yes, keep going. Yes, absolutely, please. So I, I was a dean in the un, uh, in the undergraduate program in the business school uh, and at Georgetown. And then I was there for seven years in the same program. And then the provost office wanted to set up a ombuds office or an ombuds office for students because we had one for faculty, but not for students. And asked me if I wanted to pilot this program, uh, an ombuds program. And I said, yes, I thought that, and I didn't know what an ombuds was. So you're kind of seeing the pattern here. I didn't quite know what a consultant was or a dean or um, an ombuds. And I I learned very quickly, you know, there was a learning curve and uh, I, I love this job. I love the ombuds profession. I I only started about two years ago, and I I guess what I've just learned is that I I pivoting and adapting and always constantly learning new new skills and strategies and is it, you know it's really important to me. It, it's also important to keep things fresh, and I feel like I'm you know always have to have that entrepreneurial mindset. Well, I don't think a lot of our listeners know what an ombuds is. Could you tell them what it is and then specifically what one is at a university? Yes, sure. So uh, universities usually have organizational ombuds. uh, And that's what I am, an an organizational ombuds. And I serve all of our undergraduate and graduate students. An ombuds is, let's just go with with the definition. It's an old Norse term or Swedish term, uh, and it means representative or proxy. And it's really um, an ombuds can be defined in many different ways. I think of an ombuds as someone who helps manage conflict, who uh, is impartial and confidential, independent of the formal organizational structures, and also informal. So in other words, don't keep records or documents and they're, they they do things outside of the formal grievance process um, that many institutions may have. So basically someone who is a really good listener and can then explore options with people when they come in with concerns, issues, questions, even complaints and and talk to them and listen to their concerns uh, to understand you know what what the best options may be for them and to help them explore those options and give them agency you described it beautifully and that's what i love so much and support about the ombuds about being ombuds is this a place for people to explore they're not being told what to do 
every, all four of those really important aspects of it being informal. So many times we're afraid if we say something, it's going to be written down. And, and so we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to move forward because we don't have any external help. And so that it's, I love that it's informal, that of course it's confidential and that as the ombud, you're not vying for a particular position. You don't need that person to agree with you or go in a certain way. You're trying to just afford them, as you said, agency and give them options and help them see a variety of options for them to choose. And that's one thing I love about it. In my own work as a philosopher, I, I saw myself as not telling people what to believe, but helping giving them the skills so that they can decide. And, you know, those critical thinking skills, I think that's a lot of what the ombuds does is really come along somebody and say, well, what do you want to do? And these are some options. Exactly. And, and it really brings together a lot of the experiences and, um, and the work experiences, the educational experiences that I had. So it seems like it, it seemed like a really great path for what I wanted to do. So, you know, sort of bringing in that cultural competence as well. Ombuds have to be very good at understanding people and organizations and behaviors and um, and kind of understanding the underlying interests or, you know, the things that you don't see the verbal and nonverbal cues. So uh, it was really, it's it's a really interesting profession. I learned something new every single day with every single visitor. We call the people who come to our offices visitors. And uh, it's never, it's never boring. Another aspect that I really love about um, the ombuds profession is that not only does it help the individual in the organization. There's also this piece of the, the institutional piece. So helping the institution itself be better by offering feedback. So that independence from the traditional structure. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about how that part works? Yes, sure. So I, as an ombuds, I, I tr- do some data tracking as well. So I do uh, try to understand the patterns and um and trends that may that I may be seeing in my office. For instance, if five visitors tell me, you know, similar that that they're dealing with similar issues, then I can then bring that uh, to the leadership's attention without identifying anyone, of course, or any programs. But they can then sort of take a look and say, oh, okay, this is something that we may need to look at. And it can be something as simple as, you know, the uh, trying to, if if someone comes or many people come and talk about a housing situation or the fact that they that the university needs to rethink their bus route or things like that, to trying to understand the accommodations process, the academic accommodation process, and and some of the issues that may come up because of the policies and practices that are in place. So yeah, just looking at those systemic issues is really important for for the leadership to understand and for the people who can actually affect that change to understand. Because ombuds don't, we really don't have power. So, uh, but we, you know, even though we don't have any power to, and power sort of in, in quotations, to change policies or 
practices, we can we can be change makers in the sense that we can offer that understanding and insight into you know what's going on in the organization. And I, I started during COVID, and there were a lot of ways in which the institution really had to pivot at that time and pivot quickly and understand, you know, what their policies that were on the books, what um, how that affected, for instance, international students who who couldn't, you know, who couldn't travel and who had to start their programs on with online learning and how that affected them or. I mean, there were there's so so many examples, but so this is this was really important for uh, for institutions to understand those challenges and problems that were coming up. As I really appreciate that aspect of the ombuds mission, because when I think about being in the conflict space, uh, conflict uh, restoration resolution space, and with mediation, when people come to mediation, uh, hopefully they don't come before. <laughs> prior to something that is really bad. But a lot of times that's what that what is what happens. Something has really blown up and you've got these people who are in a lot of pain and there's a lot of hurt there. And so I love mediation to try to, again, give people agency so that they can work on their problem to what works for them to move forward. But what I love about this other piece is I, I really think about conflict resolution as preventative work. What can mm-hmm. we prevent? And the ombuds has this ability to speak to the leadership to say, hey, let's prevent this harm uh, by changing the systems. Let's see what we can do so that these people aren't having these problems. And so I love that both aspects of a dealing with the person or persons who are hurting or have been hurt or need um, guidance, whatever it is that they need, but then also that part that you can then say, okay, well, let's see what we can do so that people don't experience this, this negative thing again. Yeah, that's so well put. That's exactly right. And preventative, you know, education and, and workshops are, are another aspect of the ombuds work. So um, for instance, trying to, I, I've, I've seen for instance, that um, there are a lot of conflicts that happen in, in the classroom or, or in, you know, certain programs perhaps and and people may invite me to talk about how to provide feedback uh, to students or students asking me to you know give a workshop on on gossip or on uh, on something that really affects their student organization um, or crucial conversations how to have a difficult conversation with someone who has caused you harm and and how to coach someone through that process is is a really important part of of mediation and um and preparing someone for mediation listeners if this sounds like a fantastic idea to have at your organization it is <laughs> <laughs> organizational ombuds aren't just for universities but every university given their set of issues of what a university is certainly ought to have an ombuds but every organization it's just going to be better off uh, for having a place for your people to go to, to try to figure out how they can solve their problems so that it doesn't land in the person leaving or in litigation or escalation. So Daniela, when you think about your own work history, what is one of the best experiences you've had with either a person or an institution, a boss, and what was good about it for you? That's a really great question. 
Um, I've had so many experiences, it seems. So I'm I'm thinking back now. I think the first great experience was when I was when I was consulting for a private consulting company. And the boss I had uh, was, uh, she was wonderful. She had a lot of trust in the team that was working for her and gave us a lot of autonomy and really trusted that we would do our work and do it on time and, and gave us a lot of freedom in that sense. But without just abrogating all of her, you know, authority or responsibility. So, so that was really a great experience, just having someone who was um, very open to understanding the skills that were on the team and allowing everyone to build on those skills and to then also work collaboratively. So um, I think that was one of my, my really initial understanding of what a good supervisor could could do actually and it could do to motivate a team so do you remember like any specific behaviors she exhibited so where you felt trusted you felt invested in and seen because you said that she was see the different sorts of abilities that people had and then work to the strengths and helping people collaborate is there anything that others could could mimic or take on or yeah, I'm I'm thinking back to how how she did it, and I I think it was just the way um, in which she allowed other people to speak up during meetings, where she really tried to get everyone to 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 listen to each other. And I'm I it was a while ago, so I'm not remembering specifics, uh, but but it was just this sense that I felt safe to speak about things that I really, you know, if I, if I saw that I could do something in a different way or um, that, that, you know, like we, we had to create surveys and focus group questions and interview questions and then organize trips and, and uh, try to figure out whom um, the stakeholder, who the stakeholders were and whom we wanted to really interview and bring into the process. And, and, it was, you know, there was a lot of sort of thinking work. And I just remember once being in a, a big conference room with, with, with my supervisor and with uh, the other team members. And we just had like post-its all over the wall. And, you know, everyone was able to put their ideas onto the post-its. And, and then we created, you know, work out of it. And it just, it was and she was always there, had rolled up her sleeves and was with us in the trenches, I guess. Uh, and and that was that was just a, a really great experience. And I think it also gave me the confidence that I needed to, you know, to to continue that work and and to actually start my own consulting um, company with with uh, with my partner. And, um, and to think that, you know, I can do this too. And it was really, uh, it, that was a really big, big gift uh, that she allowed us to take those risks and uh, take those risks on ourselves. And, you know, it worked well. I like that you said gift, because I think working for somebody who is a really good boss is a gift. And people talk about those bright spots in their life where 
that boss does give people this sense of confidence and builds trust and taking risks and that, you know, that we talk about psychological safety and what, what that brings that, that environment that builds people up to help them do even better work, of course, than they would have been doing on their own. And it really is just such a gift. And then we move on and we have different experiences. And often that's the kind of work that we look at back fondly, you not only the work itself, but the atmosphere that allowed us to really do good work and be with one another in this really fruitful way. Yeah, I have to, I have to say, I'm, I'm lucky that I, I feel that all of the bosses I had were, you know, nobody's perfect. Right. Um, they, they all had really great qualities and they all had qualities that I felt like I could learn from. So, you know, maybe things that I would do differently if I were in that position. Um, but everyone, all the, all the bosses I had really had the, the best intentions and, uh, and the good of their, you know, workforce at heart. So, um, Yeah. Conversely, can you tell us about a time that you experienced some difficulty with either an organization or uh, a coworker? Oh yes, uh, <laughs> I I can remember a few times, and I always I I in my I have to say that one of the tenets of my work life, I guess, is to try to get along with everybody, uh, to collaborate, and to really be a team player. Um, I've had, I've had people make assumptions about me right when they, right when they see me or right when they, uh, un, you know, know that I have, you know, that about my background. Um, I remember very clearly once when I was on a new consulting team, this was when, uh, when I had my own company and there was a, uh, someone, he was, former military uh, NCO who had done non-commissioned officer who had um, done a lot in his life. And, and he, you know, the first meeting that we had, he was very dismissive of me and said really disparaging things about people with PhDs. Like, oh, you know, they think they know everything and they don't know anything. And I, I was, I was, you know, very much younger and I was really taken aback and I was thinking this is not going to work at all. And then I just, you know, sort of put those anthropological skills to work and tried to figure out, well, what, what is he really saying? What is maybe the fear behind what he's talking about? And, you know, I, I quickly came to understand that, um, you know, he had a different background, different uh, educational background as well, of course, and just thought that uh, I was going to be one of those people who was going to talk down to him, who was, uh, you know, who thought that I knew everything. And and when we, when we went on trips, because we had to go on consulting trips together, uh, one time I just sort of hung out with him and, you know, this horrible hotel bar and <laughs> it was more like a motel uh <laughs> we're all trying to save money and had a beer with him and he started telling me about his his family and you know some of the misfortunes he had had and we really connected as people 
And I know this is like a long tangent, but but it just, you know, it just drove home this idea that people from very different backgrounds can work together and they have different skills and that they really have to understand that those different skills can work together to create a really powerful team. Uh, and he had a ton of insight that I had no idea about. Uh, and he came to respect me and the insights that I are, that I brought to the work and, and vice versa. So that wasn't really a, a, about a boss that I had, but it was about a, a difficult coworker and it could have gone really wrong if, if we had started, um, you know, if, if we hadn't come to understand each other. I, think that... I have lots of different, sorry, Mary. <laughs> no, I have, no, I have lots of different examples of, you know, not different. I feel like it's not difficult coworkers. It's there's sometimes people who just, they just don't understand each other. And um, for whatever reason, or there are certain sparks that happen, um, especially when people are working closely together, that, you know, where, where, you know, there are a lot of assumptions. And, and then there, there are also times when I, I was, you know, part of a team where some people wanted to create, how do I say, where, where some people wanted to create havoc among the team and and there are those people right who who do um kind of find joy in trying to figure out you know who is who is the person i can you know sort of tweak or 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 uh, provoke in some way uh and and that will make me a little bit more powerful and those are those are the times that it, where it's it can be very difficult yeah, I think you're so right. We are, I think we're quickly to um, label a lot of our coworkers that or the coworkers that we have a hard time with as being um, high conflict individuals um, or those individuals who want to wreak havoc, who are, you know, then we give them all these labels where I think they are very far and few between. I agree. They are out there. But a lot of it, as you said, is miscommunication. And somebody might act or behave in a certain way that we might think is objectively offensive, but I get to decide to be offended or be curious. I can decide how much I value this relationship and do I want to leave it at this and go in that direction or do I want to try, right? And that's a personal decision. Um, I would encourage people to get curious because it will be in your benefit, the other person's benefit, the organization, and then whoever you're trying to serve. But it's it's very. I understand why people immediately say, "Why you know? Why would you make these assumptions about me?" But then it ends up being about myself. And if I can turn it around and say, "Well, I'm going to give it a go," and realize that maybe that person's that person being upset is about that person, and it isn't about me, and try that. I mean, what do you have to lose? You know, if you find out this is a quote unquote, high conflict individual, you have more of an understanding and maybe a better understanding of still how to work with that person, because that's a reality. If they're on your team, they're on your team. So I think other way, other way, it's a win-win for you and hopefully a win-win for you and that other person. Yeah, being curious is so important. And in the ombuds work, you just realize how important that is and the, the types of questions you can ask. You know, I wish... I wish that in a, in some of my workplaces that I had known about that that we've had an ombuds for staff, for instance, uh, someone where we could go to and just 
discuss what was going on, vent those frustrations, and then have someone ask really, you know, those those types of questions like, well, what what do you want to see happen? Uh, how do you think, you know, talking to that person might uh, might have, you know, might produce another outcome or uh, th- those questions that make you really think about what do I want to do? And you may want to look for another job if it get, becomes very toxic. That's that's definitely one of the options. Uh, or you might decide, like I did with this um, person I was working with, is to sit down and and have a meal with someone and figure out what what is going on uh, and have sort of one of those difficult conversations. So have you had any advice? Has anybody given you any advice about how to deal with adversity at work? And also what kind of advice do you give people? Yes, I've had a lot of advice given to me. Uh, and and I, it's been really important also to have a mentor uh, in, in the ombuds world, for instance, you are sometimes given the IOA gives you a mentor and that's so powerful and useful. Um, I've been given a lot of advice that that really it was not good advice as well. So, but I will I will um, start with the advice that um, that is helpful. And you know, one helpful advice is really to to be tolerant. Uh, I, I know that sounds really you know really easy, but but yeah, and being tolerant means trying to understand someone else's perspective and, um, you know, and also to understand how you deal with conflict. So people's conflict styles are vast and varied and mine is, it it differs. Um, Sometimes I want to engage and sometimes I'm one of those people who likes to be one of those compromisers like let's just smooth everything over and and get along and you know let's let's just try to try to move forward and not deal with it um so but understanding how other people like what what their comfort zone is is also really important and yeah the other thing is just you know i have had to change jobs i mean i have I have had environments where I realize, you know, unless certain people leave this organization, I am not thriving here. Um, or I have really, I have done everything that I could in this environment and I need to move on. Um, and, and, and that is also okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, just realizing that careers are not linear. I've certainly not had a linear career. Uh, and and that is is really important to be able to, as I said in the beginning, like pivot and adapt and uh, understand that you may have to learn new skills and that's okay. And we're even though you may have a PhD or a master's in a certain, subject. I mean, right now I'm learning all about conflict management, conflict resolution, you know, which you may think has nothing to do with anthropology, but it all builds on on itself. 
And I guess that's the advice that I give to, especially students. There are a lot of students who come to my office and, you know, we talk about all sorts of things. And part of it is maybe some conflict that they're dealing with. But inevitably, we talk about career paths and they also become interested in in how I, you know, became an ombuds or, um, you know, what my experience was as a graduate student, for instance. Uh, and I tell them, you know, I I dealt with imposter syndrome. I dealt with a lot of issues that you may be dealing with. But also talk about the fact that, you know, you have to, you may think that you're on one career path, but things may happen, you know, that where you have to change and you have to adapt. And, you know, I had to change my PhD research project because I got sick during uh, graduate school and, and I had to do, um, I had to change um, career paths because, you know, of family issues or family situations. And I think that that's really the most, um, you know, the best advice that I would give to someone. Um, and, and a lot of times, especially, you know, students I see right now, they want everything to be pre-planned and they want to know what that, you know, 5, 10, 15 year goal is. Uh, and I do think that the most important thing is to be able to be flexible and adaptable. Absolutely. I think a lot of times with conflict, we become very rigid and we get, you know, trapped in these, you know, these positions. This is the position that I want. And um, we close down and our imagination closed down, closes down and we tell ourselves stories. And sometimes the story is, I can't leave this position. This is the only place I'm here. And for a variety of reasons, that might be true given economics, given location, family, but being able to reflect on those beliefs and what if I did leave, what are the other possibilities? And I really think that conflict resolution is at the end of the day about personal empowerment and helping people open back up and giving them the ability to see so that they can make educated decisions instead of feeling trapped. And so the more that I love that, the idea of really helping people think about and dealing with the uncertainty of the future, because uncertainty for many of us is scary, but that is the future. Like that is reality and helping people see what is instead of what they want it to be and planning for that and learning to hopefully be okay with it. Cause it is the truth. The truth is we don't know tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen in five minutes. Mary, that's so true. Uh, sorry, I'll, I'll just, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I, I'm just thinking about a case where I had a coworker who was so miserable and feeling all of these, you know, psychological and, and physical symptoms because of the incredible stress um, that they were under. And uh, also, especially stressed that they were feeling with their uh, with their boss and with other coworkers, but would not leave the job. And it's but it's important to note that some people have a really it's very difficult for them to leave because of also because of other life experiences, right? The sense of security that they need or the fear of the unknown, as you were saying. And some of that is also a trauma response. Mm -hmm. So it, it's very difficult and it's very important for others to sort of empower them to, to imagine what, how much better it can be if 
you know, if they do take that step and they do take that risk. Yeah, absolutely. I am currently writing a book called, um, it's sort of like a coffee table book called How to Be Unprofessional at Work. And uh, so in my philosophical background, uh, I do a lot. I have always done a lot of knowledge via the negative way. If you don't know what something is, let's start when we know what something isn't and then try to move closer. And so it's um, it's not really tongue in cheek. I mean, it is. It's giving you know bad advice like show up late and leave early. And then on the other page, it says like why this is going to ne- negatively impact you or even dress professionally. Well, I'm not telling you I know what that means, but I know that a lifeguard needs to dress differently than a surgeon. So ask, get curious, find out what it means at this organization. And if Mm -hmm. this organization is behind the times, talk to somebody about it. But so when you said that you have been given some not good advice, uh, do you remember anything that you've been uh, told that is not great advice? Well, I've had advice where um, some people have told me to you know, challenge a coworker or to, or to speak up. Uh, and I, I don't, I, I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like you shouldn't speak up, but um, really to do it in a, uh, in, in a more of aggressive way than I wanted to. And as I said, it's just not my conflict style. So I, uh, I often want to figure out how to compromise, how to um, collaborate, and many times, sometimes it is to my detriment, right? Because then I don't, um, I'm not as direct as or forceful as I should be. But I just realized, I said it, it's bad advice. Maybe it wasn't bad advice. Maybe it, it just would have had a different outcome. So I think that it's important to understand what is the outcome that you want, you know, before you take action. Uh, and there is that 24 hour rule, for instance, don't shoot off emails when you are extremely upset. Um, and, and I think that that's advice for, for conflict as well to sort of sometimes sit with it and understand, well, what is the outcome I want? Do I want to be so confrontational with my boss or coworker that I really burn bridges and, uh, you know, I'm, I may have to work with them in the future, or I, th- this may not be what I want. So you really have to also understand what your needs are. And, and, uh, and my needs were different from the person who was giving me the advice that right? they wanted a different outcome. Um, and, and so I, you have to be very careful with also the interests of others when, when they're giving you advice. So that's different from a mentor where a mentor, you know, I, I could, uh, the mentors I've had have been always, I could trust them. And I guess that's, it's also uh, comes down to trust as well. Yeah. I am a recovering fix the world person, right? Mm-hmm. I, I want to make everything right. I want to alleviate all the suffering. And so I have, I know what everybody should do, which is, <laughs> you know, completely false. And I've, increasingly understanding that my solution is what is good for me, my solution. And that may not work for you given so many different factors. And so, you know, being really gingerly about giving advice instead of telling somebody what to do, partnering with them. And because they're living with the solution, it is their life. It's their conflict style. It's their relationships and all conflict on, on page. It might look one way, but it's highly individual and highly personal and respecting that individual person 
And, and as you said in the very beginning, giving that space just to listen to them and then asking those questions so that they can come to their conclusions instead of me putting it in their mouth. Because first of all, it's not going to be as good. It won't be as effective. I mean, there's so many different reasons why advice giving in um, without a particular kind of mentoring, nurturing, trust relationship is just bad advice. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's not going to be as effective in um, caring for the other person rather than investing in them and trusting them, trusting individuals that they can work through while giving them different options and that you're just giving them options. Yeah. And that's really, that that's very difficult to do. I also am a fixer. And, you know, when I was a, a, a dean, an advising dean or academic dean, that's sort of, that was sort of the role, right? To give advice um, then in that advising dean name even. So moving to the ombuds role uh, was really interesting because I realized that exactly what you're saying, you, you're not giving advice, although people will ask for it. And, and then, you know, always trying to figure out how to uh, get them to come up with their own with their own advice, right? With their own options. I wish I had known this when my kids were little because it's it's also difficult to, you know, there's one thing doing it in a work environment and then in your own family. So that's always where <laughs> where there's not al- there's not always overlap, right? <laughs> right. Um and I I I think it does though. It 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 makes sense to use that in parenting as well and to not to just tell your kids what they should be doing or your family members, but really trying to figure out how to ask those questions so that they can come up with their own solutions. I have noticed for myself, I have three kids and a husband, and I've noticed since I've been in this space that a lot of the times the advice I give comes from a place of fear. Um, Mm -hmm because I don't want bad things to happen to them. And so I think if you do X, then you'll avoid that bad thing. And I have to try to mitigate that as a mother and as a wife um, or as a friend, instead of acting out of fear, but giving them space and trusting them. Because all four of those people I mentioned are absolutely lovely and trustworthy individuals. So how do I engage in a fruitful, proper relationship with them without giving them my fear or talking to them because I've got this anyway, that for me, I see that coming out. And so I try to think when I say this, is it because I'm afraid or is this just life advice? Like, Hey, if you're in a city, don't go to the gas station at midnight or I don't know, whatever it might be, you know, (laughs) those sorts of things. Yes. And, and that's, again, where we need to understand ourselves and understand that we we are as as mothers, as parents, we, of course, we have that uh, we want to keep our people safe. And in a work environment, it's a little different because, you know, that kind of personal fear isn't there. At the same time, I feel like this, the ombuds training I have received has also helped in my personal relationships where I can, you know, think about mediation and uh, talking to my family members in a different way as well. 
uh, and I'm talking extended family or, you know, there's always conflict in family. So, uh, so, so the same kinds of tools we use as ombuds or conflict managers can also be used in um, personal settings. And that's one last thing I want to say I love about the ombuds work is that when you come in, when somebody comes in and they are helped and they learn new conflict resolution skills, and not only helps them for that immediate conflict, but then it has a way of, or at least the possibility of going out into their larger life and the next conflicts that come across, whether they're at the university or at a job they have or in their family. And the better we start equipping people through their experiences of dealing with somebody who helps with conflict just, I think, helps all of society, them individually at this particular time, but hopefully starts giving them a picture of, well, if I deal with this early and often in a way that's comfortable for me, if I you know, can feel my own efficacy and that my ability to make these decisions or that I know where I can go for help, so on and so forth, I hope, I hope that's how we build this new world of, of advocating for ourselves and others and um, not walking on eggshells. That's, a, it's very well put, Mary. And I remember my, my kids, one of, they were both um, labeled peacemakers in, in grade school. I think they had these peace tables that, you know, where, where the students could come and, and talk about their conflicts around a table. And don't you wish that that would be something they would do throughout their whole educational career? Like K through 12, we should have these kind of conflict management uh, tools or and techniques that everyone can learn. But I think you're right. It, it's not something that that is uh, is given and, you know, that that we but that we learn. We really have to teach ourselves and yeah, not enough of it. Yeah, I love that lunch table. That is such a wonderful idea. We should have it from K all the way through right the, the end of our whatever we're doing in life. That's wonderful. I agree. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, with me today. And uh, I really appreciate it. Oh, I appreciate you. And I appreciate hearing your philosophy, Mary. Thank you so much for, for inviting me. Thank you, Daniela. Well, take care. Thank you, Daniela, for being on Conflict Managed. I so enjoyed our conversation. Listeners, our conversation went on for a while after we stopped recording. She's just wonderful to chat with. Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services and hosted by me, Mary Brown. You can find us online at 3pconflictrestoration.com. If you would like to watch little one-minute videos on conflict restoration, you can find me on TikTok at 3P Conflict Restoration. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.